Truly great is God's faithfulness for enabling us to gather together in his house, to hear his word, to worship him in song, in prayer, and to, in the breaking of the bread and in giving. We thank God for giving us this opportunity. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer before we hear God's word. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise, Lord, for enabling us to gather this morning. It is by your mercy that you, we have come together. You have given us this breath of life. And you have given us the great opportunity to hear your word. Speak to us, O Lord, this morning, so that the purposes are, your purposes are accomplished. Your purposes to glorify your name, Lord. Help us do so. Even as I speak, give me hum, uh, keep me humble, Lord, and put the right words in my mouth, Lord. And help me to exalt your name and glorify your name through the power of the Holy Spirit by rightly dividing your word. And I pray for those who are listening, Lord. Help, help each and every one of us to go out, Lord, with obedience to your word and recognizing, Lord, that this word comes from you and that we are wholly uh, subject to it. Help us to be in submission to the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. We give you thanks and praise in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. For those uh, newcomers and uh, even for the congregation itself, my name is James Fernandez and uh, I've been going through the book of Titus for the last um, several months, and this is my third message from the book of Titus. Uh, last time when I uh, spoke through Titus, I spoke about uh, the elders, their qualifications, their characteristics, and uh, and uh, if you looked at those characteristics, the traits that uh, Paul has outlined in the book of Titus, they are really beautiful uh, characteristics. They are characteristics that are based upon God's standards, not upon human works, not upon human standards. Those are standards that we all need to aspire, not only as a body of uh, elders, but also as a body of believers. They are aspirational characteristic traits that should be residing within each and every one of us. Those should be the determining factor for our lives, the way we walk, the way we talk, the way our motives uh, uh, are uh, established, the way our interactions are with people that's what should be guiding us that should be what should be motivating us and the good thing about the teachings that um, uh, Paul gives to Titus was essentially to establish elders within the community of uh, the island of Crete so that they could uh, refute some of the false teaching that was going on around on that island and uh, last time in the message that I talked to you about I said I would this time give you an explanation of what those false teachers were how they looked, what did they do, how did they behave, what was their motivation to behave the way they were behaving. So with that in mind, today we are going to look at the uh, characteristics of these false teachers from the uh, book of Titus chapter 1 verses 10 to 16. And for those who are using the church Bible, it is page 1699-1699. So I'll give you a few seconds to open up your Bibles, page 1699. Paul writes to Titus, he says in verse 10, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said, It, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, this saying is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to their merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. As I read these verses, if you look at the words that Paul is using, they're pretty strong words. They show the uh, basic uh, uh, evil characteristics of these false teachers. It tells us how they behaved, what was the motivation that uh, led them to behave the way they were, and what was the consequences of their actions. The way I have, I'm moving to this uh, message this morning is I'll go through the characteristics of these people, then I will tell you what uh, guided them and what were the behaviors and what were the consequences, what uh, motivated them to do the way they did, and then based upon the instruction that Paul has given to Titus, how do we deal with such false teachers? False teachers have to be dealt with. They have to be silenced. They cannot continue destroying the very essence and the body of Christendom. Uh, I have titled this message today as Portrait of an Anti-Elder. You may never have heard the word anti-elder before. I'm you coining this word for the first time, at, at least as far as I know. And uh, the essence of an anti-elder is similar to an anti-Christ, right? Anti-Christ is basically an exact opposite of Christ in terms of behavior, in terms of action, in terms of uh, the end results. Similarly, the anti-elder is opposite to the high action, uh, the the. Uh, the, the, the very essence of an elder, the behavior, the character, and the action, it is an exact opposite of it. Uh, these attributes of an anti-elder, it comes right out of the pit of hell, right out of the bowels of Satan. They're so evil, they're so wicked, because it causes disruption, chaos to the entire body of Christ. And that is really horrific and horrible. So this morning, uh, what I'm going to do is, if you look at history, History is rife with people, with false teachers, with anti-elders. Whether you take look at it 2,000 years ago, or you look at it maybe 3,000, 4,000 years ago, even today, you see these false teachers everywhere. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read you two stories of two extremes. These two extremes are some of the, some of the deadliest in terms of what they eventually caused within the Christendom. And the reason I'm giving you these examples is, so when we go through the characteristic traits in these verses, you can go back and you can try to see how they fit together. And you'll see the fitting of the two is completely in harmony. What we see in these two examples is exactly what Paul is talking about. Whether it was 2,000 years ago or whether it is today, man's nature has not changed. So with that said, what I'm going to do is this warning that Paul has given to us today in Titus, we should not take it lightly. It is grim. It is, uh, it, it, it is a warning for all eternity. It is a warning to you and me. It is a warning to Christendom. So the two examples that I'm going to give is, uh, I'll, I'll read the stories. The first story is taken out of the History Channel. Uh, it's out of the website uh, dated April 19, 2022. 
I've got to keep drinking water because I was sick. I'm still recovering from whatever I had. So, Jim Jones came from humble beginnings. He was born on May 13, 1931 in rural Indiana. In the early 1950s, he began working as a self-ordained Christian minister in small churches around Indianapolis. In order to raise money to start a church of his own, the charismatic Jones tried various ventures, including selling live monkeys door-to-door. Jones founded what became the People's Temple in Indiana in the 1950s, then relocated his congregation to California in the 1960s. He curried favor with public officials and the media, donated money to numerous charitable causes, and delivered votes for various politicians at election time. People's Temple ran social and medical programs for the needy, including a free dining hall, drug rehabilitation, and legal aid services. Jones' message of social equality and racial justice, familiar words, right? Exactly what we are seeing today, attracted a diverse group of followers, including idealistic young people who wanted to do something meaningful with their lives. As Jones' congregation grew, the estimates were approximately 20,000 at the peak of his ministry. As Jones' congregation grew, negative reports began to surface by his followers. Former members described being forced to give up their belongings, homes, and even custody of their children. They told of being subjected to beatings and said Jones staged faked cancer healings. In the 70s, following negative media attention, the powerful controlling preacher moved with some 1,000 of his followers to the jungles of Guyana in the West Indies, where he promised to establish a utopian community. All his claims turned out to be false and impossible to attain. On November 18, 1978, U.S. Representative Leo Ryan, who had gone to Jonestown to investigate claims of abuse, was murdered along with four members of his delegation. That same day, Jones ordered his followers to ingest poison-laced punch while armed guards stood by. This came to be known as the Jonestown Massacre, when more than 900 members of the People's Temple, including children, died in a mass suicide murder under the direction of Jim Jones, who himself was found in a chair dead from a single bullet shot through the head. Truly gruesome events. The account is horrific. And just on a side note, the source of the phrase, drinking of Kool-Aid, comes from this story. So be careful when you use drinking of Kool-Aid. All right. The second story I'm going to read is from biography, uh, the website biography.com, dated March 27, 2023. David Koresh was born Wayne, uh, Vernon Wayne Howell to an unwed teenage mother named Bonnie Clark on August 17, 1959 in Houston, Texas. During his early years, he was raised by grandparents. Koresh struggled in school due in part to severe dyslexia and poor eyesight. He spent much of his lonely childhood playing musical instruments and studying the Bible, which developed into an obsessive interest for him. By age 12, he had memorized and interpreted the entire New Testament. Koresh became a born-again Christian as a Southern Baptist church but disagreed with their teachings and joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church instead. He was seen as an overbearing, 
by other congregants constantly attempting to convert them to his interpretation of religion. In the early 1980s, Koresh, then still known as Vernon Howell, moved to Waco, Texas and joined the Branch Davidians, a splinter group from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Soon he had begun teaching his own biblical interpretation in lectures called The Serpent's Root, which caused unrest among the group. A leadership dispute arose, which Koresh eventually won. During this time, he married a 14-year-old Branch Davidian girl. In 1990, he legally changed his name from Vernon Howell to David Koresh. His new first name was a reference to King David, while his last name was Cyrus's biblical name. Koresh's teaching included the practice of spiritual weddings, which enabled him to bed God-chosen female followers of all ages. Koresh was said to have as many as 20 wives, some of whom were under age of 17 and to have fathered at least a dozen children with members other than his legal wife. Koresh believed himself to be a prophet and claimed he had, as a matter of fact, he also claimed to be Jesus Christ in some of his quotes, and claimed he had cracked the code of the seven seals in the book of Revelation. He told his followers that the Lord built the Davidians to build an army of God. As a result, he and his followers stockpiled weapons in anticipation of the apocalypse. On February 28, 1993, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms raided the Davidians compound, resulting in a 51-day siege that ended when the compound erupted in flames. Koresh was among the more than six dozen found dead after the fire, including children again. He had apparently died from a self-inflicted wound. These are truly grim stories, stories of ex two extremes, and the results were devastating in terms of the physical and the spiritual consequences. Unfortunately, these kind of consequences just do not reside within these extremities, but you can see them flowing in Christendom, so-called Christendom, whether they are in mainstream false groups, in denominations, in false teachers, and they are out there, out there preaching their gospel of error, ready to destroy the masses. These are to whom Jesus refers to as wolves in sheep clothing. They come to us and they present to us a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to name a few of these groups, fringe groups, and a few names so that you have a flavor of what um, these people look like. So when I go through the actual traits, you can go back and think of these groups and understand, yes, these groups have the exact traits that Paul talked about. Some of these groups include Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Oneness Pentecostalism, Unification Church, so on and so forth. From a preacher standpoint, we have Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Peter Pofog, Joyce Myers, and the list goes on. You look at the mainstream Protestant denominations. They are taking in more and more of the cultural uh, aspects of uh, the society so that they can become more relevant. Those cultural aspects of the society are things that are anti-Christ, anti-gospel, anti-Bible. And they are adopting totally heretical teachings. Ecumenism or saying that everything goes is on the rise. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ is now not the only way in many churches. They truly believe that the way of salvation resides in all these other uh, whatever fringe religions or fringe whatever you want to call them. It all resides in them. We see them on the TV. We hear them on the radio. We read them in the books. They are on our social media, whether your phone or your computer or anything else. They are out there. They are giving this message. And they are giving out this false message that is, is truly resonating with the public. People are eating it, devouring it. And unfortunately, these people are headed down the path of destruction. They are all down on the path of destruction. That is the sad part. And that is why it is so important that we understand these false teachers, these anti-elders, and we understand what they mean to us. So, with this background, and I've given a lot of background over here, and, uh, I, and I just wanted to do that because we are truly under, uh, grounded as when we go into the scriptural passages. So, with that, we'll, we'll first look at the characteristic traits of these false teachers. So, with that said, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningful, meaningless talk and deception. Paul starts off with the joining word for. Why is he using this uh, for? Why, what is he connecting it back to? And this connects back to the latter part of verse 9. He says over here, so that he can, that he's, he's talking about the elders, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So the for is, these elders are going to oppose those who are giving the wrong doctrine. So the connection is very strong. The elders have to be strong in the word and they have to be able to refute these people who are giving the wrong doctrine. So that connection is very strong over there and that, that connection is interesting in the sense that Paul says there are many. He doesn't use the word few. He doesn't use the word some. He uses the words many. If you look at the island of Crete, Crete is not a very big island. It's really small. It may be smaller than Maine also, the state of Maine. And on that island, there are so many false teachers. The, 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 the imagery given over here is... The, the, the imagery given over here is that uh, these people are... Uh, they, are, they, are uh, they are all over the place on the island and they're taking over that island with their false teaching. They are bringing a gospel that is totally aberrant. And that is why Paul needed so many elders to help him to, in this cause. Uh, Titus, uh, Titus could not do that alone. Titus needed help. Titus needed more elders. That's what I explained even last time is he needed like-minded people. In the church today, we need like-minded elders to support the whole pastoral group so that these false teachers can be stopped, that they can stop them from leading many astray. Godly leaders are required to stop the mayhem, to stop the bleeding. That is what it is. So uh, we looked at the traits of the godly elders last week. And I'll just read them very, very quickly so that we can understand what that is. So when we look at these, we can look at the disparity and the differences. It says in uh, 6, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe are not open to charge of being wild and disobedient. 
an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. What beautiful traits. These are the traits, as I said earlier on, we should all be aspiring for. The traits of the anti-elder is an antithesis of what I just read. It's an exact opposite. Paul identifies approximately 10 traits, and these traits are distributed within the... Uh, these uh, from 10 to 16 all over the place. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring them together so we can understand it and um, I'm, I'm just going to collect it. And what I'm going to do is for each of the traits, I'm just going to give you a high-level picture so you understand what that trait means. Okay, I won't go into the depths of it because uh, otherwise it will open up uh, a lot more than I can do within this uh, 40 or 50 minutes of time. Just one second, Paul, am I recording or not? I'm sorry. Okay. It's been bothering me. So <laughs> I'm trying to figure that one out. <laughs> All right. So verse 10 says, uh, these elders um, or these anti-elders were full of uh, were rebellious people, full of meaningful talk and deception. When we talk about rebellious, rebellious in the dictionary means unruly, out of control, desiring to resist authority. They are desiring to resist convention, control. So when, when you talk about rebellious people, these people were people who were an authority to themselves. They did not want to be under the authority of the apostles' teaching. They wanted to teach what they thought was right. In many cases, these, uh, these um, anti-elders, rebellious people, or rebellious people had a special anointing from God. They had a special word from God in which they elevated over even scripture. Very often these rebellious people are people who would collect or rather start off with their families and people, cronies who were like-minded, people who would affirm their, uh, their teachings and would never ever contradict them. Even though the teachings was, were in direct contrast to the authority of the scripture, these rebellious people wanted to do what they wanted to do outside the authority of the Holy Spirit, outside the authority of Scripture. The next one is full of meaningful, uh, meaningless talk. The picture over here is exactly what the word says, full of meaningless talk. That means whatever they said had no sense, did not make any sense. They had no substance, no redeeming value. Even if they said something that was true to the gospel, their lives were in direct opposite, direct contradiction to what they spoke, so that whatever they spoke had no meaning at all. People who saw them, saw them as meaningless. They may have been smooth, they may have been persuasive, they may have been articulate, they may have, may have been able to expound in mannerism that would attract other people, but at the end of the day, whatever they presented was in direct opposition to the gospel of grace. That is what... Uh, this picture of full of meaningless talk refers to. Next one is full of deception. Deception in the English dictionary says, is the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. These people were teaching error and they were teaching and peddling it in the form of truth. 
and they were causing many to believe that it was truth, whereas it was never truth. It was, it had no spiritual benefit, and the only reason of that, or or the only consequence of that teaching was to take them off the spiritual path of righteousness. It was taking them down the path of destruction. That is what deception does. Deception is very dangerous in the sense that you think it is truth, but it is not really truth. It is all false. And you see deceivers day in and day out. And Paul in verse 10 specifically identifies these characteristics and he says that uh, they are related to the circumcision group. It is important to understand who the circumcision group was. The circumcision group were basically Jews who professed to be Christians, yet insisted that salvation required the observation of uh, physical circumcision. So, in turn, they taught that uh, you couldn't know God unless you followed all of the mosaic ceremonial laws or the traditions of the the Jews at that time. Unfortunately, they they had melded the gospel of grace with the gospel of grace plus works. And uh, that, that is even prevalent today. Um, the next uh, three characteristics are in verse 12. In verse 12, Paul says, They are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And what he does is he ties this char- these three character traits with the race of the Cretans. It is interesting that um, the race of the Cretans uh, um, personified these three evil traits and um, it was not only uh, uh, validated by the uh, historians of that time, their own philosopher Paul um, reaches out and um, takes uh, Cretans from their uh, philosopher known as uh, Epimenides. Uh, He was a Cretan scholar from 600 BC and he's the one who actually penned down these three um, um, character traits for the Cretans. And um, as a matter of fact, these uh, three traits were proverbial in the ancient world and reflected the nature of uh, the Cretan race. And in sense, if anybody uh, had those traits, they were referred to as Cretes or Cretans for that matter. Um, So I'll go through these three very quickly. The first one is liar. The picture here is uh, people were habitual and compulsive liars. They were lying all of the time. That was their governing vice and it resided within the very body of their being. We all lie. There's no one over here who doesn't lie. Right? But in their case, their lying was compulsive. What was very part of their nature. And that is what uh, Paul is uh, referring to over here. Is everything that they did and every act Every word that they spoke was a lie. And and that is what he's trying to uh, portray. As a matter of fact, um, in ancient Greek, to cretize meant to lie. So these false teachers were liars by by a compulsive act that was coming from within. The second one is evil brutes. Even when I speak this word, evil brutes, it kind of... (laughs) Makes me want to gag or something like that, right? Evil, brutes, animals, worst kind of people. This is the kind of picture you get, right? And these people, the picture over here that Paul has is, these are people who are behaving like fierce animals. People who, animals that wanted to devour us, to tear us apart, to 
eat us from the inside out. That's the kind of picture that uh, Paul has over here. The intent of these people was evil. The intent of these people was to uh, destroy. They had no qualms for working out their wildest fantasies and mauling believers or future believers along the way. That is the picture of evil brutes. The next word is of lazy gluttons. I'm sure when you hear lazy gluttons, you'll have someone pictured like a fat man, not me, <laughs> sitting on a chair and doing really nothing, feeling allergic to work, not even wanting to work, and overindulge. And that, that, that's the picture Paul has about these people. These people were only intent on accumulating wealth and doing things for themselves and not for others. And they wanted everything done for themselves. They were gluttonous for their own pleasures, for their own lust, for their own greed. That is what drove those. So that's the picture of uh, the three Cretan characteristics. He then moves on to verse latter part of verse 15 and 16. In the latter part of verse 15, he says, their minds are and conscience are corrupted. And then in verse 16, he says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So in essence, they, they, they had a veneer of uh, claiming to know God. They said, we are the true proponents of God's word. We are believers. We are your spiritual leaders. Yet their actions denied God. Yet their actions said, I am not a man of God. They possessed Christian, they, they posed as Christian believers, but their practices did not match their profession. So with that said, I'm going to go through these four uh, traits very quickly. They were corrupted both in mind and conscience. The picture over here is picture of an unsaved person. Corruption in mind and conscience is only possible when a person is unsaved. These people were truly unsaved. They had nothing that was good in them in terms of uh, what they would deliver. They were corrupt from the inside and whatever they brought out was also corrupt because they were not saved. Detestable. The next picture over here is people who are deserving intense dislike. When you use the word detestable, it is a word that says, I hate you. I do not like you. There is nothing good in you. That is the picture that Paul has over here. Strong, strong, strong word by Paul, right? Detestable. These were people, as I said earlier on, right out of the bowels of hell. And Paul couldn't use a stronger word over here. Detestable. They were people to be hated. They were people who were to be disliked. That was the kind of nature that they had. Then he says disobedient. The picture over here is people who were not obedient to the word of God specifically. They did whatever was in direct opposition to the word of God. They posed again as Christians saying that they were doing the word of God, but they would never do the word of God. They were in direct opposition. And finally, unfit for doing anything good. The picture here is of a person who was totally useless. The person who could do nothing to please God. Their actions were worthless. Uh, they led people astray from God. 
they peddled error. That is the kind of picture you have over here. So I've gone through these 10 character traits very quickly. And I want you to take pause for a minute over here and look back to the two examples that I gave you earlier. Jim Jones and David Koresh, right? We saw two examples. And we laid these, their, these traits against their action. And we can see the similarities. Both of them were authoritarian in nature. Both of them set up their own theology and taught it without accountability. They lied. They deceived. They were greedy for wealth. They were sexually licentious. They behaved like wild animals with their followers. I mean, you heard from Jim Jones' believe, uh, followers. They said that he was totally dominant over them, right? He would not give them any leeway. Things haven't changed. 2,000 years, Paul gave us this warning. We see them today. You take this another 2,000 years back, it was still there in the time of Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You, you go back to the kings. You go back to any time. The false teachers' the nature has not changed. Man's nature has not changed. 2,000 years from today, Christ does not come. It will still not change. These teachers are going to remain, and if they are going to remain, we are God's sheep, and we are vulnerable. There are many wolves in sheep clothing out there. They are eager to lead us in one direction or another. They appeal to our weaknesses and make what we want to hear seem like it is from God's word. We have to be cautious. We know we've seen these traits and now it is important to understand how they behave, why they behave they do, what is the consequence of their behavior, and at the end is how do we deal with them. Okay, so with that said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to first look at uh, their behavior and understand why they did what they, for what they did. So let's look at uh, verse 11. And I'm going to look at uh, the latter part of verse 11. It says, because they are disrupting whole households by teachings, things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. The verse is very clear. They were disrupting whole households. That was their uh, behavior. That was their action. They were disrupting whole households by teaching them what they not they were not supposed to teach, and they were going from house to house, making sure that those people are completely uh, in havoc by the time they went out from there. Now, what were they teaching? That's the key question to ask, right? Uh, in those days, uh, they were teaching something that might be slightly different from today, but in essence, the, uh, the, the, the flavor of the teaching does not change from era to era. Uh, let's start with the first one, right? Uh, what were they teaching? And the verse 10 gives us a clue. He says in the latter part of verse 10, he says, especially those of the circumcision group. So what were the circumcision group teaching? I kind of explained to you earlier who the circumcision group was. Basically, Christian Jews who were teaching legalism, who were teaching human commands, who were teaching traditions, who were teaching things from, um, uh, from their past uh, baggages that they brought, right? And I'll go with some details over that. So, so 
So first thing is people who are teaching Jewish legalism and commands. The second one is uh, in verse 14. If you look at uh, the latter part of verse 14, it says, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands. So people who are teaching Jewish myths and human commands, again, the human commands, I'll talk about it in Jewish legalism itself, but the Jewish myths were something that they were teaching and those myths had no scriptural basis. Now, I wanted to take a few seconds or a few minutes to at least explain what these myths and the legalism was so that we have an understanding of what they are. So Jewish legalism or Jewish commands were all rooted in the um, uh, Jewish traditions, right? And uh, the Bible refers to them in various uh, various areas. And I'll just explain to you very, very quickly. They pertain to circumcision, dietary restrictions, food offered to the idols, festivals, observing special days, new moon celebration, ceremonial laws, elaborate tithing, etc., etc. Unfortunately, man's works and man's traditions have no place with the gospel of grace. They go in complete uh, opposition to each other. There is no harmony within the two. We cannot have legalism, tradition, human commands blending with the gospel of grace. It is either you're saved by grace you're not saved by grace. Unfortunately, that's what these uh, Jewish people are doing. Jewish myths. We do not know what these Jewish myths were. As a matter of fact, I, I, do, I do not know. I tried to search everywhere and I looked at people like MacArthur and all these others. They did not really talk about uh, the Jewish myths in any details. We have some references in Jew, Jude. Uh, but I looked at uh, Edward Earl Ellis. He was an American Bible scholar. What he did was he looked at the Talmud and he tried to look at some of the teaching within the Talmud and try to see if there would be some of the myths. And I took uh, some of his examples as, uh, as uh, examples for you to understand what these myths would be. And when you, re when you listen to the absurdity of these myths, it will make you want to laugh. But unfortunately, these were the myths that people were following if, if it was the case. Okay, the first one goes like this. The dust of the first man, that is Adam, was gathered from all over the earth. And they cite Psalm 139.16 and Zechariah 4.10. Psalm 139.16 says, God saw the unformed sub substance. And Zechariah 4.10 says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro from the whole of the earth. With these two, they form the myth, the dust of the first man was gathered from all over the earth. And that's how Adam was created. The second one is the first man had two faces. And they take Psalm 139.5 as the uh, basis. And they say, thou hast formed me behind and before. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> behind and before with two faces. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what they believed in. Then the third one is Michael is greater than Gabriel because he reached his goal in one flight. They used Daniel 10.13 as one flight and then they say Gabriel took two because in Daniel 9.21 the fly occurs twice. So think about it how absurd these claims were right. These are the kind of myths uh, that might have been prevalent at that time. This message of uh, legalism and myths it really appeals to, this, uh, to the nature of man because we want to be in control. We want to be in control of the desti our destiny. We want to believe 
that we can earn God's favor. We want to go to the religious motions with our own actions so that we are always in control. But unfortunately, this teaching, it goes, it, it creates disruption and havoc in, um, in families, in people, in believers, because it takes them down the path of destruction. It takes them down the path of unsalvation. My own uh, word, unsalvation, is, does, does not exist, but I'm just using it over here. Uh, because of the fact that the gospel of grace, that means they should have been focusing on reconciliation to God by grace and grace alone, whereas they were focusing on reconciliation to God by grace through works. Salvation is not possible apart from grace. Yes, works come after and that shows that you have been saved, but works is not the basis of salvation over here. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. If you can open your Bibles, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. I just wanted to emphasize and read this once again because it's a, it's a beautiful verse and uh, we, should be, we should always ground ourselves in this verse whenever we are tempted to focus on legalism or works-based uh, righteousness. We should always focus on this. For it is by grace you have been saved. Oh, page 1665 in the Church Bibles, I'm sorry. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I'll also read verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All is all in all is in God's hand. Nothing is in our hand. We remember that we will never fail. Interestingly enough, uh, this these outlandish claims and legalism is also prevalent in today's society. And I'm going to give you an example from the Word Faith Movement. Many of you might have already heard it and even read it. I'm just going to read it very quickly. This is what they believe and espouse. Human beings are created in the image of God and are little gods. They imply that people are capable of controlling a faith force and have the power to bring their desires into being. They cite John 10.34 as a proof text. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods. We are not gods. We'll never be gods. Never fall into the deception that is out there. The deception of many false teachers. Many, of, many people believe in this and they claim this kind of truth and teaching to claim what is what they want. Just for their own personal gains, they claim this and this is what is out there. I'm sorry to say that, but this is what is out there. Uh, here, So uh, with, with that understanding of what the teaching was like, I, I want to point out one thing over here is um, in the early church, people met in small houses, right? And uh, preachers would go from house to house. So in, in this case also Paul, when he talks about whole households being uh, destroyed, He's essentially saying that these false teachers will go from house to house and teach them false teachings. And in essence, what, uh, what we can imply over here is by them going from house to house, they were actually teaching them, these people, in isolation. 
that is exactly Satan's ploy. Satan wants to isolate us, isolate us from other people, other messages, other uh, truths, so that uh, the false teaching basically then dominates in that household and changes them and teaches them the path of destruction rather than the path of righteousness. Even in today's day and age, people are likely to fall when they are pulled apart from the church. False teachers in that day wanted to isolate them. False teachers in today's day want to isolate you. And the classic example of isolation is television, televangelists. You sit in the comfort of your home, listen to the junk, likely to fall. Because there's no one out there to contradict that false. So, what made these men tick? What was their motivation? Why were they teaching falsehood? Verse 11 gives us a clue of it. He says, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. When Paul talks about dishonest gain, he's, uh, I think, specifically talking about um, wealth. But I can see other things also in terms of dishonest gain as I look at other false teachers and what they uh, what they get out. Uh, so when we talk about wealth, these people wanted to fill their pocket, to make themselves rich so that they can... Um, meet their own needs, uh, not needs, but their desires, their their uh, their, uh, their longings, wh- whatever else is out there. It was not about, uh, they wanted the luxurious lifestyle. Even today's day and age, you see many, many preachers wanting the luxurious lifestyle, the $60 million home, the deer jets, the yachts. I don't know what they did in the olden times. Maybe they had fancy sloops or fancy yards, but I'm, I'm not sure. But but whatever it was, right, they wanted to line their own pockets. They were not concerned about the people. They were not concerned about what, how they could spiritually build those people up. They were only concerned about their own pockets. And when you look at other gains, I, I would like to talk about the other gains also. They were looking at sexual favors. They were looking at building power. They wanted power. They wanted autonomy. They wanted people to say, you are the next coming, right? And they wanted to satisfy their narcissistic pride. That that is what was driving those people. It was all about themselves. It was never about the flock. Yes, they were saying, you're believers, but it was never about the flock. It was always about the self. They were out there to chew up the sheep. That is what fools do. They want to eat you, devour you. They want to consume you. The behavior even exists today. And I'm going to give you an example of wealth accumulation. And uh, this is really bizarre, right? Even when I read it, and I've heard it before, but it is truly bizarre. And it's taken out of Justin Peters' blog dated February 7, 2014. Uh, He talks about a Benny Hinn broadcast. And he writes, During a Benny Hinn broadcast, Steve Muncie, claimed to hear the voice of Jesus in real time, promising Hinn's viewers that if they would call in and sow $250, that they would receive a 12-fold return. 12-fold, that's a lot. And God would heal them of any sickness. Now the question to you is, why $250? This is where the bizarro comes, right? You ask, well, that's a reference to the boy who gave two fish and five loaves of bread. Two fish, 
five loaves and add zero for good measures to 150 right and this is out there right and people are falling for it line hook and sinker and 12 fold that's because there were 12 baskets of fragments left over sad sad i mean we can laugh about it over here but there are millions of people who are falling for this for stupidity out there on a daily basis people are going down the path of destruction people who are going to spend time in eternity of hell that's out there these people have no where where they listen and hear about sin repentance reconciliation to god through faith in jesus christ for eternal blessings can we let these people continue what do we do about these false teachers paul does not let this gloss over he says we have to take action we have to deal with these people their behavior is totally unacceptable and their behavior to continue in this manner is unacceptable so what paul does is he gives three essential commands for uh, the elders to follow and i'll go through these very quickly so that we can understand of how we need to deal with the uh, false teachers but one thing i do want to mention about paul paul is not only a strong apostle but he's also an apostle of love and you see his love flowing in his commands that he's giving his people he does not say that i'm going to abandon these people he wants them to change he wants them to turn and that's the beauty about it um So the first one is verse 11. He says they must be silenced. Very clear. Very succinct but very strong. They must be silenced. Titus and the elders of that of that island had to silence them. They were not to sit back and let these people continue to take over on that island. They were not to let them continue to peddle their error, but they had to silence them. obviously they were not going to go and cut their tongues to silence them but they had to take certain measures to silence them it is not clearly written as to what those are but i'm just going to conjecture and tell you three uh, ways that they might have done it um the first one uh, it comes from the fact that uh, the churches met in small households right so and he needed a lot of elders so my assumption over here is those elders had to go to the houses individual houses talk to the people teach them the sound doctrine which they themselves learned and through those sound doctrine they had to equip those people to fight against the error that was being peddled towards them he had they had to make them strong and also i think they would name those teachers by name that is why it is very important that we as a church and as a group understand who those false peddlers are we have to take them by name we are doing it out of love not out of trying to put them down but in love yet we are warning our people that you need to take care of those people and that is what i think was happening in the early church so that those people were equipped to fight against error the second one is coming out of verse 9 itself and in verse 9 he tells that uh, the elder must be uh, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine that is my second clue 
we had to teach people sound doctrine. Your elders, your teachers have to be grounded in God's word. And they have to be able to clearly articulate and to expound God's truth so that the flock understands exactly what God wants them to do. So when the elder is saying something from the pulpit or from any other area, he's speaking the words of God as outlined in God's scripture, not out of fantasies, myths, or out of any other human methods or means. That is very important. It cannot go anywhere else. Titus and his team of elders were grounded in the truth of God. And when they went out, they gave the truth of God so that the people of God would be saved from the destructive teachings or heretical teachings of uh, the false teachers. And the third one, I think, is uh, coming out of uh, uh, the characteristic traits that I talked earlier on, 6 through 8. The elders, the traits of the elders, they live godly lives. If you live godly lives, you will be putting the false teachers to shame by sh through your life. They will see that um, the, 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 the flock will see that the lives of the elders through their godly living is so different from the lives of these false teachers. They will be in stark contrast to each other. One lining his pocket, one hospitable. One um, contentious and sexually licentious, the one living with one wife sexually pure. They'll be completely different. Wouldn't one want to follow that clean life versus this unruly life? So that would automatically silence the wrong teachings of those false teachers. So these were the three examples that I wanted to give. I just wanted to uh, highlight one more verse uh, to um, substantiate the holy living. It says in 1 Peter 2.15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. This is not only true for the elder, but it is true for every believer. We should be desiring and living holy so that we silence the foolish talk of ignorant people, people who are peddling lies. Holy living is important. I mean, it starts with grace, but we cannot continue living in sin and say we've been saved by grace. Those are uh, incongruent and they are oxymorons. Cannot go side by side. Right? Then the next uh, uh, teacher, the next uh, warning that he gives us is in verse 13. He says false teachers therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith. The first command is rebuking them sharply. You cannot, uh, you cannot let them continue peddling their error, peddling their myths, their human commands, their uh, uh, Jewish uh, traditions. Paul's command is very clear to them. You need to rebuke them, warn them against doing them, and teach them the right things so that they are not doing the wrong things, so that they are not peddling the wrong things. And the reason for that is, that they should change, that ways should change. See in the uh, second half of that verse, he says, uh, verse 13, so that they will be sound in the faith. Paul is not writing them off. Paul is not abandoning them. He's not saying you are 
uh, humans uh, come so that you don't even care about you. He has love. He has empathy towards them. He wants them to change. He wants them to become believers so that they can put their faith in Jesus Christ, walk the right way, and live as exemplary believers. That is what Paul wants to do. Wants them to do right, and that leads into the third one. In verse fifteen, he says, um, "To the pure, all things are pure." He wants them to be pure, so that their human tradition, their human works, and all, are not related to their purity. Their purity was dependent upon their salvation, upon their faith in Jesus Christ, so that anything that they did was pure. When he refers to all things over here, he's not talking about sinful things. He's not talking about adultery becoming pure, right? He's talking about traditions. He's talking about Jewish commands over here uh, that uh, like uh, washing of hands, okay? Washing of hands at the end of the day doesn't make anybody pure. But if you're purified by the blood of Christ, then that washing of hands really has no meaning. It is pure. Whether you do it or you don't do it, it doesn't matter, right? Anything. But if you're not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the second part of that verse, even if you wash your hands every day, every minute, every second, you're still impure. That tradition doesn't make you pure, right? It, it, it is just like communion. You can take your communion all the day long. But if you're not saved in the blood of Jesus Christ, that communion has no meaning. So his, his uh, point over here is he wanted them to become pure so that they are not bogged down in the human traditions of purification. That, that becomes irrelevant to them. They're, rather than the fact is their, uh, their entire salvation and their entire uh, reconciliation to God is just based upon their faith in Jesus Christ and not by human works. And I think that's very important to recognize that um, Paul wanted their salvation and through their salvation that they live pure and holy lives. So with this summary that you have heard this morning in terms of the anti-elders, in terms of their characteristics, their behavior, why they did it, how we need to deal, deal with it, do you think... Uh, uh, that Paul was within the boundary of Christian love to speak about such things to these anti-elders? I would say yes. We heard the message yesterday in, uh, in our prayer meeting. We talked about love. We spent some time on love. Love does not bear sin. Love never glosses over sin. Love deals with sin. And love deals with sin for salvation. To be indulgent with uh, such deceivers is sin. But to be dealing with the sin is love. So Paul in putting down this command is showing love. And we, when we deal with such sin, we are showing love towards the false teachers so that they can repent and change from their ways. So, well, how does it all relate to today? Are there bad guys in the church? Yes. Are there people who claim Christianity and yet look nothing like Christ? The answer is yes. 
You look at the newspapers, you look at the television, we saw two examples of uh, Jim Jones and David Koresh, we saw the false teachers, we saw the so-called religious groups. False teachers are a real and present danger. They exist today and they have existed through the annals of time. False doctrine, it is like yeast. It enters secretly, it grows and it completely fills us up. We've got, we've got to be very cautious about these false teachers. We've got to take what we've heard to today very seriously. These teachers, they are on church pulpits as I said earlier. They are on the radio, they are on the television, they are on social media, they are in books, magazines and pamphlets. They are like ravenous wolves. You know how the wolves attack a flock of sheep? They take the sheep, keep one sheep separate and then they attack that sheep and then they consume that sheep. But when the sheep are in a group, you cannot do it. The wolf is ineffective, right? That is exactly what these false teachers are trying to do. They are trying to separate us from God's word. They are trying to separate us from God's people. They are trying to separate us from accountability. That is what they are doing. The blogger Tim Chalice tweets, he says, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians or power brokers, pastors. You've got to be cautious about these people who are out there. The message of uh, Paul was given to Titus and the elders 2,000 years ago. And it is still relevant today for the pastors and elders of today's day. But the message is also given to church members. Discernment and safeguarding from false teaching is of the utmost importance. It is extremely vital. The modern church has an attitude today. And it says, it makes no difference what you believe. Just as long as you believe in something. This is one of the most heretical statements out there. You cannot believe in something. You can only believe in the word of God and that is the only truth that is out there. Truth cannot be in disharmony with another truth. One is truth and one is a lie. We cannot have two truths that are conflicting with each other. Because of this attitude, we have false teaching out there. We have compromise creeping in the church. We have growth of the cult movement. For the church, my warning or my guidance this morning is sit under correct teaching grow in God's word we, we heard that earlier in the morning Psalm 1 when Pastor Ram was encouraging us about God's word rebuke false teachers correct wrong doctrine and completely submit to the Holy Spirit this should be your hallmark this should be the hallmark of every believer it makes all the difference between a life spent of, of a life spent in eternity in hell versus a life spent in eternity in heaven with Jesus. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to hear your word, Lord, even as there are false teachers out there. You give us discernment and understanding, Lord, so that we um, walk in the ways that are pleasing to you, Lord. And help us, Lord, to rebuke, correct, when we see wrong teaching and help us Lord to um, not fall prey 
because there are many out there that are competing voices and that are taking us away from the truth. Help us, Lord, not to fall in this deception and uh, direct us in the right way, Lord, so that we bring glory and honor to your name in everything that we do. And let us not into the fall into the paths of uh, temptation or evil. We give you thanks and praise in the name of the Lord, Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.